quarter purity. Uh, as you'll see later, purity means, is, means holiness. And if you're at Bible um, Sunday school this morning, and even the early part of the worship, you can kind of see how the spirit is flowing. And I just thank God sometimes. I mean, I thank God all the time, but sometimes when you're preparing the message, you're not quite sure whether it's the word for the season, whether it's appropriate, but I just thank God that this is definitely the word. And this is the word that will help us in 2018. In Jesus' name. How do I just press? Awesome. So, um, the first bit I'm going to go through fairly quickly. Those that were great two weeks ago, you will recognize some of these slides. So, so the backdrop of this is, is this word, sensuality. I don't know if it projects very well. Sensuality. And it is what it is. It is what it sounds like. We, we live in an age, basically, in which our senses are being bombarded with things, with objects. And we are, we are essentially, we're, we're obsessed with what we can see, touch, feel. And this word in particular, sensuality, is very much a word of our, a word of our age because it, it talks about the enjoyment and expressions of the physical. Now, we know that we are spirit beings, but yet we are in an age that manifests, that promotes self, that promotes your experiences, touch, smell, what you eat, what you see. And of course, we talk about the issues of sensuality. We can't talk about, we can't, we cannot talk about issues of um, of sex and pleasure. Now, this is in stark contrast to this call to purity. This call to purity, purity, as I said before, is a word that has the same root origin as holiness. Now, when you, when you really look into the word, it, it's not a superficial word at all. It, it, it's, it goes to the core. You can see the line that says that the importance of purity means not only on the outside, but also on the inside. See, a lot of us, and I say us because no one is perfect, they're very good at presenting a holy front. But what goes on in that, that deepest, darkest moment of your mind when no one else is there? And this is this is where we this is what we have to talk about. This is where we're going. Okay? And may God help us in Jesus' name. Now, why is it important? Yeah. So why is this important? So purity, we can easily say, yeah, I'm pure. Yeah, of course. I'm, I'm standing before you. I must be pure. Purity is not my problem. Are you are you really sure that is not your problem? Um I'm not gonna go into details because I talked about it in Greenwich. But when we look at it, you see that not only is it your problem is not only a man's problem, it's also a woman's problem. And once again, I'm not going to go into the details of it. Sorry. Is that me? And let me shock you. It's not only a problem for unbelievers. You won't even believe the statistic. I'm not going to bore you with it today. But trust me, it is very much a problem within the church. Okay? Purity is important because it's very clear. To be holy is important. To be righteous is important because we know that without holiness, there is no eternal life. So, yes, you can give all the excuses you want to give and you can say that, oh, I can't do it. Um, my righteousness is like a filthy rag. Yes, it's true. But the lack of effort, justifying what you do, not trying doesn't work because without a pure heart we won't see God 
and that is the fact of the matter. Now, I said this is this is um, uh, more of a Bible study than anything else. Um, and what we're going to do is that we're going to study the life of well, we're going to study parts of the life of David. Now, David, uh, as we know, King David in the Bible, uh, particularly when we look at First uh, Samuel, Second Samuel, David was a great man from a young poet, a diligent shepherd. Um, killing bear, lion with his bare hands that tried to come after his sheep, to one that was anointed, shot to fame by killing Goliath with a sling. Great king, ruled for a total of 40 years. First three of those years um, as over Judah and Israel, um, down at the age of 70. So, but, but we know that this was not all. He had a very dark moment, actually, that that served as the beginning of the end of his reign, a, a, a blemish on what would have been the story of an impeccable king. Now, once again, I mean, we know from the Psalms that David really was a man after God's own heart. When you read some of the Psalms, you can't help but feel that, wow, this man is, uh, I mean, some, some people say he's a lyricist, but he, 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 he's a man that had a deep connection and a deep understanding with God. So how is it that someone like King David can still fall? Now, I put down 2 Samuel 11 as pure drama. It really, really is. If you read it and you kind of slow down, and if you compare it to any drama, you really will see. Man, do you mind opening for me? I don't think my next slide projects that well. So if we open our Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 11, and if you just read for me um, from 1 to 10, and then we'll, yeah, and then we'll, we'll dissect it together. 2 Samuel 1 to 10. Sorry, Samuel 11, rather. Yeah. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanliness. Then she returned to her house. And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him, asked how Joab was doing, and how the people were doing, and how the war was going. Then David sent to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not want let's to go let's, down. Let's, let's stop there. Let's stop there. Um, because you can easily read the whole thing. And I mean, I implore you to <laughs> to really just just study this. Now, if we if we just go back a second, okay? And we talk about what happened here. It's very easy to say, ah, David. 
David, King David, what were you doing? You know, dirty old man, some would say, because he was around about the age of 50 when this happened. Um, he committed adultery. Very easy to say David did not have self-control. But, you see, the, the whole point of this is that sin is not something that just happens. Yeah? Some, some big sins, or everything is sin, but sin is not just something that, oh, whoops, you don't, it's, like, it's not like a ditch that you just accidentally fall into. It's a process. So if you look at the process of what happened, looking at this case study, we can see that actually his issues did not even start in 2 Samuel. Now, it's really quite interesting because when you look back in the Old Testament at Deuteronomy, there were some guidelines that were set in place for the people in terms of how they should live. And even the kings in terms of what they should do. And it was said very, very clearly, if you, 17, 14 to 17, Deuteronomy 17. It, say, it tells them, refrain from acquiring too many horses. You can ask why. But, you know, a horse is, is a possession. Refrain from taking too many wives. Refrain from accumulating too much silver and gold. Now, you said these are, these are random instructions, but why is it that God is telling people to do this? But yet, we see in 2 Samuel chapter 5, this is, just, this is when King, um, King David was being made the, the joint uh, king of Judah and Israel. So when, when, when they came to him, when it was at uh, Hebron, and he was going to, to Jerusalem. So to, to celebrate his, um, I guess, the expansion of his territory, it says very clearly, and it, and it was such a, an odd, it was just like someone just dropped something in there. And David took more concubines and wives out of Jerusalem after he had come to Hebron, and there were yet sons and daughters born to David. And David took more concubines and wives. Now, it's important to, to actually say that, you know, when you read in that context, you almost miss it because at the time it wasn't, it, it really wasn't a sin. It wasn't a sin at all for a king to have more wives and more concubines. It was his right, his privilege. You know, they even call it the, the what is the spoils of war. I, I, you call it what you will. In fact, some scholars, when I was reading, they, 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 they explained that David actually used his wives. If you look at his eight wives that we know of, he almost had wives as um, uh, to cement political uh, alliances. So each wife was from somewhere slightly different, so that you know that, that region is cool. But, but so so it was socially okay. In fact, it was desirable. But this was not what God wanted from his kings. So even from that period. You could argue that David has started desensitizing himself when it comes to that particular issue. He had a weakness. He had a weakness. And this is what will later on lead to his issues. So desensitization. Now, the point from this is, therefore I just highlights, in case you missed it, is that, you see, because something is normal, because something is allowed, because something is encouraged, doesn't mean God is okay with it. The social standard is not the same. So it's, I didn't say equals or there's a, it is not the same, is not the same as God's standards. Social standard is not the same as God's standards. Now, 
we'll touch on this later, but the question, the question that I asked at Greenwich that we spent time, how, how do we do this in today's world? How are we desensitizing ourselves? How are we desensitizing ourselves? The eyes of the window to the soul is not a biblical scripture, but you can see the origin of it, Matthew 6, 22, when it reads that the eye is the lamp of the body. If your vision is clear, your whole body will be full of light. And then Cicero, the Roman philosopher, um, and then Shakespeare, good old Shakespeare, expanded on it to, to what we now know. The soul, we know the soul is the mind. So I put it to you that in lots of ways today, subconsciously, we are desensitizing ourselves through the things that we feed our mind, through the things that we feed our most important sense, our eyes. Now, I'm sure a lot of us recognize those series. We're not going to dwell on it. But there is a, a not very subtle erosion of what is normal or what is acceptable. And sometimes through what we are encouraging ourselves to do, we fall into the same trap that led, that started David's decline. Second point is relaxation. This is really interesting. I mean, when you... <laughs> When you, when you start by reading, it, said, it happened in the spring of the year. At the times when kings go out to battle. At the times when kings go out to battle. King David. King David was like, God, look, I've done enough. God has been so grateful to me. Um, I've got Joab, this incredible general. He can sort these things out. I don't need to be there. I don't need to be there. Let me chill. Literally, that's, that's exactly what it was. That's exactly what it was. He remained in Jerusalem, Jerusalem, in his palace, in his place of comfort, in his place of relaxation, where he thought he was safe. Where he thought it was safe. And then, and then you read, so that was like, that was the scene. And then you read number two, verse two. Then it happened. You're like, what? What do you mean, then it happened? How can it then happen? It, it will suggest almost that David was used to this lifestyle of casual relaxation, chill. Then it happened as he rose from his bed and walked on the roof. Now, if you, if you look at some commentaries, they said he'd he, been sleeping, sleeping all day. This is not, he didn't wake up in the morning. He rose from his bed in the evening. He was sleeping. His guys were, he was sleeping. Chilled. Strolled up onto the roof of the king's house. Probably enjoyed uh, the sunsets. And what happened? And what happened? I said, he saw. <laughs> he saw. You see, I think relaxation, relaxation is, can be a deadly thing. Okay? Being idle, not having something specific to do at a particular point in time, can land you in the wrong place at the wrong time. If he had meetings, if he had, if he had anything else to do, he might be called general. What's going No, no, no. They, he found himself exactly at the wrong place at the wrong time. Now, we're not going to go to details about why Bathsheba was there. That's not relevant. I know some people try and put, but that's not, that's not the issue. The issue is David himself was in the wrong place at the wrong, wrong time. Now, um, if I ask DK, like, okay, right. I'm walking street, minding my business, right? My, uh, and something crosses my, something just, I'm just, 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 I didn't mean to look, it just happened, it just happened. Something just crossed my field. I just saw it, right? Whatever. Yeah? 
when you see something, so, and then, I mean, I've, it says, and then he saw the woman bathing. And the Bible, every translation you look at, emphasized how beautiful this woman was. Whether it was David's man at the time, whether it was the way the darkness was, whether it was, who knows. But we just know that this woman was very beautiful. Now, when David saw her for the first time, what, was that a sin? Was that a sin? The first look, was that a sin? But did King David stop there? Okay. Is that second look, isn't it? Is that second look? He went beyond seeing. He fixated. He fixated. I have it here in my notes that he, he was transfixed. He lusted. Now, the word transfixed is a very interesting word. If you look at it, it means to be stabbed, to be gored, to be pierced. So at that point in time, something, something happened to him. He lusted. At that moment, I wrote down, David forgot who he was. He forgot God's calling on his life. And he forgot God. Now, it's interesting. I mean, I was reading around this, and he saw this very intense-looking man um, who is uh, Dietrich Bonn Bonhoeffer, uh, German. He's a pastor. He wrote about this particular issue, this moment in time. And... So he was an anti-Nazi, he was a spy. Actually, unfortunately, he was killed by the Nazi regime in the last, last month of the war. But what did he say? So he said something along the lines of this about, about the issue of lust. And that time when we were processing things. He said, at this moment, God is unreal to us. God loses his reality. The only reality is the devil. And then it goes on. When the lust takes over your mind... You see, the power of clear discrimination and decision are taken away from us. And then, I mean, he goes on to say later on that it's not that what the devil does at that time is that he makes us forget God. We forget God. We forget God and we forget who we are. What does the Bible say? In Matthew 5, 27 to 28. See, that moment, actually, of that fixation was when was actually when he committed the adultery. We know that there was a cascade of events that led to the physical adultery, but actually that, that moment in time when he lusted was when he committed that sin of adultery. Okay? So we spoke about he was desensitized, he was chilled, fixated. If we look on, now, to commit any sin, there usually is some sort of negotiation that takes place in your mind. Now, the reason that this came up is that most people, we're, we're used to lying to ourselves. And the more we do it, the easier it gets. Now, for David, what, what happened Someone actually, when, when, when he, after became fixated and he said, yeah, okay, you know, you know, send one of his guards, like, go and find out what's going on. Who's this person? Go and find out. Someone was like, they actually tried to warn him. They tried to warn him and say, actually, David, David, King David, is this not Bathsheba? Essentially, is this woman not already, maybe, I don't want to add to the Bible, but who knows what David has been doing in the past. Maybe that was a, 
maybe him sending for people was not an unusual thing. But they had to once say, King, is this not is this not the daughter of Hita? And then there was a pause. There was a pause. There was a pause. So what happened in that moment when there was a pause? There had to be a process of rationalization. Now we have to think that this is not the first time. If you look in the story, if you look in Genesis with Eve and the serpent in Genesis chapter 3, after the serpent was trying to tempt her to eat of, of the, um, the, 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 the tree where she ought not to eat from. And basically he convinced her by saying, you know, you surely wouldn't, this is um, Genesis 3 verse 4, said to her, so you surely would not die. God knows that the day that you eat of this, your eyes will be open. And then 6 goes on to say, so then the woman saw that the, food, the, 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 the tree was good for food and it was pleasant to the eyes and desirable to make her wise. So once again, at that point, she also had to think, well, actually, it can't be that bad. And besides, it looks good, so it must be okay. And if I'm going to be like God, I'm going to know more like God. That's, that can't be a bad thing. Rationalizing things. Making things make sense to justify the action. At this moment in time, it's quite funny. I found a, I found a commentary which I'll, which I'll summarize. There's a, uh, an American evangelist that wrote about this particular, exclusively about that moment between Hittite's question mark and then David. Because that then David, as I, as I highlighted, will suggest that there was a pause, a thought process. He made his decision, then David, right? So he suggested a, a narrative that may have gone on in, in David's mind, something like, well, Uriah is a great soldier, yeah, but he's not much of a husband or lover. He, he's several years older than, than, she, than she is, and he's always away for a long time, right? Um, and actually, some scholars suggest that the tradition at the time was for the soldiers to partially relinquish their wives in case they don't come back from battle. So maybe David, you know, justifies somehow that actually she technically maybe is not even married at this point in time. She needs a little comfort. She's lonely. I can help her. No one will get hurt. No one will find out. Um, and this is not love. No, this is not. I'm sorry, this is not lust. I know love. I know this is definitely love. This is definitely love. And, you know, God knows my house. I'm a lover. You know, I'm a lover. Send, send her. <laughs> send for her. <laughs> so you can imagine what, what he had to go through a process like that to justify what he did. He lusted. See, once his mind became lustful, then you can justify anything. Once you allow yourself to, to, to be in a place that your mind has already conceived what you're going to do before you've done it, where you've already actually committed the act, then you, your mind is beautiful. You will find any reason whatsoever to justify. So how do we justify to ourselves nowadays? <laughs> I was thinking about this. I was laughing. I was saying, God help us all. God help me. God help us, you know. You know, like, God, sure, if God's will is for me to be happy, if this makes me happy, surely it's okay. Who said that before? Yeah, or another popular one. Well, we're 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 gonna get <laughs> we're gonna get married anyway. <laughs> we're engaged, so what does it matter? Hello, have you heard that one before? Yeah, and you know how about this one? God did not want me to be in this situation anyway. So anything I'm doing to get out of it must be okay. 
rationalization. How do we do this in our everyday lives? Now, after this, what happens? As in the story of David, you then get to a degenerate state. Now, in my line of work, we tend to do operations on things that are degenerate, so things that are worn out, yeah? so things that are broken down. Degenerate, decay, decline, degraded, sinking, descent, dropped, regression, retrograde, atrophy, whatever way you want to look at it. And medically, of course, you know, when, when things don't do what they're supposed to do anymore. So this is the final step. This is the final descent. I put down this is the slippery slope. This is the slippery slope. Now, it was really interesting because I didn't know this, but I found out. You see, even scientists, they've, they've proved this, that when it comes to some issues, when it comes to sin... Once you've had a little piece of that cake, is you want to go back, right? Yeah. It's the same thing. Interesting article published last year in a um, massive paper, journal, which shows, I mean, they were looking at the amygdala, which is the part of the brain that controls emotions. Now, for the person that doesn't lie, they tell them to tell an obvious lie and they scan their brain, MRI scan, functional MRI scan, and that part of the brain lights up. Of activity, emotional. Something is wrong here. Something is not right. But they get them to tell sequential lies, and the light goes down, down. Less reaction. You pull a serial light there, nothing even happens. <laughs> no flash. <laughs> no nothing. <laughs> so what am I saying? Even scientists have proven that the first sin makes it makes the second sin easier. Once you get on that slippery slope, it's a lot easier to carry on down. Now, what happened in the case of um, David? Now, it can be argued, and I've seen the argument actually, and I'm convinced by the argument that actually in that moment, see, once he allowed himself to commit the first scene, he effectively broke all the commandments. Now, what was the first scene that he committed? Pardon? Yeah, someone said it. Yeah. So he, he coveted his, his neighbor's anything. In this case, it was his wife. And then what did he do? He stole the wife. What did he do? Adultery. Killed. And then afterwards, he had to cover it up. So he had to bear false, false witness to get the guy killed. And even after the murder was committed to cover it up. And if his parents were alive, is this honorable to them? Boom. And you're wondering, how am I going to get to one, two, three, four? <laughs> That's how. <laughs> now, ultimately, one to four are the honoring God commandments. So in that moment, did he have anything to do with honoring God? So what does it matter if he was keeping the Sabbath day holy? What does it matter if um, he was not using the name of God in vain? He had dishonored God, full stop. So those four commandments are completely irrelevant. So this is how he went from one sin to breaking all commandments just because he allowed one sin in. Now, we have to be very, very, what's the word? Very sober as Christians, as people that claim to know God, because it's, it's easy to find ourselves in this situation. As we said before, David was a man of God's own heart. So how is it that he ended up in this situation. If we read the scripture here, Romans chapter 6, 1 to 2, 
mean, you can see what it says. Shall we go and sit in and hope that grace increases? Now, what am I saying? I'm saying if we understand the principle of sin, we know what sin is. For those that don't know what sin is, in a way, they can almost be excused because they don't, they don't have heard, but we know. And we go on sinning and we expect grace to abide. Is that really going to happen? Is that really going to happen? Now, Paul, in his letters to the Thessalonians, he, I mean, because clearly the early church was going through the same thing that we're going through. He, he urges them, as you can see, be holy, live in holiness, honor, live holy. Admonishing them to live a life of purity, to live a life of holiness. Because that's the only way, the only way to know God, the only way to see God. And then eight is the bit that starts to get a little bit scary. Because anyone who refuses to live by these rules is not disobeying human teaching. It's not about Paul. But they're disobeying the teaching of God. They're disrespecting the Holy Spirit within them. Now, did we not talk about that this morning, sir? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. What is the unforgivable sin? Now, when we talk about the sin that cannot be pardoned, we, I mean, we, we see what it says there. So essentially, it was to do with the scribes and the Pharisees that were claiming that the acts of Jesus were through a demonic spirit. And just pointed out to them that any blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is one that cannot be forgiven. But let me put it to you. Let me put it to you that this is not the only way. You know, we can easily say that, oh, I don't blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. I don't disrespect the Holy Spirit in that way. But, well, hold on a second. Our body is supposed to be the temple of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. The Holy Spirit is supposed to dwell amongst us. So when we knowingly know what is right, but we choose not to do it, when we intentionally disrespect, disrespect our body, that the Holy Spirit is supposed to be living in. Is that not disrespecting the Holy Spirit that's supposed to live in us? And this is supposed to be the unpardonable sin. May we not find ourselves in that situation in Jesus' name. May we not find ourselves in that situation in Jesus' name. Now, what I put up next is, oh, this, this is quite interesting, actually. So that God fit, fit for Christ, fit for life, it's quite interesting. It's actually... Um, Disclaimer, it's actually copyrighted, but I think copyright expired, so I can use it. Um, now, we have a part to play. We have a part to play. We have a part to play. We know that there's abundance grace. We know that God is merciful. But there are things that we can put in place. There are practical things that we can try to do that will help us. Paul, once again, talks about here... If you're looking um, at the end of verse 7, it says, exercise yourself to godliness. Other translation says, train yourself to godliness. Because physical muzzles and eight-pack, ten-pack, looks good, but it's not profitable in heaven. So we can train ourselves to godliness. So I think I've listed six words, buzzwords, that I want us to, to think about and mull about as this year is ending, that hopefully God will help us um, with in the coming coming year. Be real. So the first one is a practical step. Be real with yourselves. Be real. Be real. Be real. Okay? Be real. What do I mean by that? 
I can say that I don't have a problem in that department. I can say I don't have a problem with sin. Are you sure? If King David could fall, who are you not to fall? Be real with yourself. For all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. Be accountable. Accountability. Now, we, we know that when, when you're not accountable, you can be a law to yourself. So the question I, I asked in my notes now is, who, who am I accountable to? Am I accountable to my wife? Am I accountable to my friends? Am I accountable to the pastor? Is there anyone in your life that can correct you when you're wrong? Is there anyone in your life that you can tell the whole truth to and that you know will put you in the right path? Third point, simply pray. Simple. Not, not rocket science. Pray. And we see James, James 5.16, particularly in his amplified version, how it ties in prayer and accountability. Confess to one another, therefore, your faults. And pray for one another. Not only for yourself. Pray for one another. That you may be healed and restored. That you may be healed and restored. And it puts that bracket to a spiritual tone of mind and hearts. And then it goes on. We have to pray. We have to pray. Memorize the word. Memorizing the word. Now, our example par excellence, as the French would say, our, our role model, Christ. We saw how he was able to rebuff the devil by detailed knowledge of the word. So when the devil was trying to quote, misquote Old Testament scriptures to him, because he knew the word, he didn't have to start flicking through the, the Torah. Or he, he knew the word. He memorized, so he was able to rebuff because he knew the word. And this is a challenge even to myself as well, that we have to, you have, it has to be at your fingertips. How can a young man cleanse his ways? By taking heed according to the word. Your words are even hidden in my heart that I may not sin against you. We have to spend time not only in reading the word, but also in memorizing the word. And the next point is to guard, guard your mind. Guard your mind. We said before that your, your mind, your eyes are the gateway to your, to your soul, your mind. Guard it jealously. Do not allow yourself to be desensitized. Do not allow your, your eyes to... to, to <laughs> do not allow your eyes to consume things that in the long run will disadvantage you. There are a lot of things that happen subconsciously through some of our indulgences that we do not fully appreciate. Now, we can talk about this till whenever, but just guard. Guard your mind. Guard your mind. Very sensitive. And the last point I put down Before I mentioned that on the issue of uh, if your eyes are causing you to stray, then it's best you don't have them. Or at least take one out so you get to <laughs> what use are two eyes that allow you to you know, see your way all the way into hell. <laughs> May God help us in Jesus' name. The last point is about building hedges, building fences. This is a very interesting, I mean, when you look at this literally, is mind-blowing. Can, can a man scoop fire on his lap without his clothes being burnt? May God help us in Jesus' name. May God help us in Jesus' name. May God help us in Jesus' name. Now, I mean, we've said a lot. We've covered a lot already. 
Um, and I mean, the thought I want to just leave us with is this purity and holiness is something that can be worked out. It's something that requires grace and something that God has to help us to do. But at the same time, it's something that is essential to our eternal life.